0: Paul's declaration that he has become all things to all people gives me the heebie-jeebies as a woman and as a pastor. As a woman, it reminds me of a Peggy Lee song made popular in a perfume ad when I was a teenager. The catch line of the commercial was, the eight-hour perfume for the 24-hour woman, who could, according to the song, bring home the bacon, and fry it up in the pan, and, oh, by the way, never, ever let you forget you're a man. The ad, in the ad, a flawlessly gorgeous model appears first in a power suit with a fistful of cash and then in slacks waving a frying pan around and finally in a slinky cocktail dress. Subtle, right? Well, it was the 1970s. And then as a pastor... As much as both pastors and parishioners, secretly or not so secretly, want the pastor of their church to be everything to everybody, it's a recipe for burnout and not healthy for a congregation. Paul sounds as though he may be experiencing burnout himself, but he says he can't stop himself. The Corinthian church is divided and one faction has challenged Paul's authority as an apostle to guide and teach them. In these verses this morning, Paul is justifying his decision not to accept financial support from the Corinthians, even though he's entitled to it. We don't know why he isn't asking to be paid in this situation. He explains to the Corinthians that he proclaims the gospel because he is compelled to do so. He can't stop himself, whether he gets paid or not. He does whatever he needs to do to get Christ's message across, including becoming like a Jew when he's with Jews or like a Gentile when he's with Gentiles. Perhaps some of the Corinthians interpret this as being wishy-washy. People in marketing might be thinking Paul is just following the old adage, know your audience. But is this about marketing and sales? Is Paul just being a chameleon, one thing for one audience, another for another? It sounds a little slick, a little manipulative, even if it is all done for the sake of the gospel, as Paul insists. Paul adds one more way that he has adjusted to his audience. He says, to the weak, I became weak. Here he doesn't say that he became like or as weak, He says he became weak. And suddenly we move out of chameleon territory into something else. What Paul is describing here is neither a marketing strategy nor an evangelism strategy. He's talking about encountering people in a genuine, vulnerable way. Paul uses the word weak, which sounds judgmental to us. I'm going to have to yell over this lovely rain. Weak sounds judgmental to us, a better or worse than word, but I believe what he means by weak is vulnerability. Paul remembers the God who sought him and the people who showed him that God was seeking him, and most importantly, that God was also seeking everyone else on the planet. The way Jesus sought and connected with with and included people was by opening up, opening his heart, emptying himself of ego again and again. So this is Paul's model. In order for for Paul to become as a Jew, he already was one, but he was trying to connect with those of his own people who didn't share his understanding and practices. In order to become like a Jew, then, he had to care about a group of people who were different from him. He had to care enough to meet them on their own terms. That meant listening to them, opening his heart to them, being vulnerable to their stories, their needs and desires and fears. And this is always risky because truly opening up to the other, being vulnerable with the other, weak with the other, inevitably means we will change. The word for this kind of behavior, for Paul's behavior, is not marketing, not evangelism, but hospitality. We often think of hospitality as being about tea and cakes, or maybe a warm greeting, or even taking the trouble of inviting a newcomer over to coffee hour. Those are all good things. But Christian hospitality, biblical hospitality, goes beyond this. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, that the practice of hospitality in the Bible is often described with the word phylloxenia. Take the word apart and you get phylo, philo, from one of the four Greek words for love, and xenia, the word for stranger. Love the stranger, in other words, which is about as counterintuitive as you can get. For most of us, xenophobia, fear of the stranger, comes much more naturally But in that case, scripture is unnatural. According to Jonathan Sachs, chief rabbi of Great Britain, the Hebrew Bible in one verse commands you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but in no fewer than 36 places commands us to love the stranger. Sachs continues, The supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. For only then can we see past our reflections in the mirror to the God we did not make up. To see God's image in one who is not our image. This morning we begin our four-week conversation on race and privilege at 11.30 in the Fireside Room following coffee hour. In the film we'll watch this morning, anti-racism activist Tim Wise talks about a conversation at a racism awareness training session. The African Americans in the session described the race and class barriers that had made it so difficult for them to live what we might call the American dream. At one point, a white man spoke up and said, It's simple. You work hard and you get ahead. That had been his reality. That's what his world looked like to him. And so Tim Wise said to the man, what would it mean if these people in the room know their reality better than you know their reality? The hospitality that Paul is describing means opening up to the fact that our reality is not the other person's reality. It means attempting to understand and have compassion for the other person's reality, Paul is operating out of a principle stated by Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Volf writes, Inscribed on the very heart of God's grace is the rule that we can be its recipients only if we do not resist being made into its agents. What happens to us must be done by us. Having been embraced by God, we must make space for others and invite them in, even our enemies. Now, inviting them in doesn't mean converting people to our way of thinking or being or doing or believing. The president caught flack this week for noting, in reference to ISIS, that there have been times when people mass-murdered in the name of Christianity too. And it is time that we Christians redefined evangelism or perhaps recaptured or restored the original meaning of the word that Paul models for us here, evangelism as radical hospitality. What Paul describes is a radical way of life in which he walks alongside all kinds of people in order to draw them to God, in order to draw them to relationship with God, not to a set of beliefs about God. And I know of no better way to draw people to God than by imitating God's welcome. I had a chance to practice this on Friday night. It was my turn to work at our Friday night shelter. We, many of us, take the shelter for granted after five years of hosting it, but I know there are people here this morning who don't know what it is or what we do on Friday nights. Every Friday night from mid-November through mid-April, we host 25 to 50 men who have no place else to sleep over in Duncan Hall. We make a good hot meal and serve it on real dishes with real glassware with cloth tablecloths and cloth napkins and floral centerpieces. Friday night we had lasagna, roasted fresh vegetables, the men favored the mushrooms over the Brussels sprouts. A spinach salad with berries, jicama and feta cheese, I know these details because that was my contribution hot rolls, and apple pie for dessert. It was raining Friday night, just about like it is right now, and the men arrived at the peak of the downpour. Several of the men who were working at the shelter went out to meet the bus with umbrellas to walk our guests into Duncan Hall. We greeted them at the door, shook hands, traded mundane observations about the weather, and invited them to have a cup of coffee or tea or instant cocoa to warm up while we were getting the food ready to serve. Then Joy Snyder rang her Nepalese singing bowl, and we formed the circle that we always form. There were a handful of announcements, including that the paperback books that Maureen Kalbus had set out are there for the taking and don't need to be returned. Joy described the meal, and we all laughed sheepishly when we learned that the guys had been served lasagna every night that week. Bernie Del Santo, a retired San Anselmo police chief, passed out space blankets, those compact foil-looking blankets that keep folks warm and dry, and he also gave away a jacket. Then we joined hands. Joy told the men that they didn't have to hold hands if they didn't want to, and Royce led us in grace. Martha Spears, Sue Neal, Joan Basor, Elizabeth from the preschool, and I served the food buffet-style. And we try to have enough food so that we can be generous. Big helpings and seconds if folks want them. Phil Boyle, a former city planner for San Anselmo, and high school junior James Conant, our intrepid dishwasher, served the milk, orange juice, and water at the tables. The Cowperthwaite's, John and Carol, brought the apple pie around at the end of the meal. But before the pie, we, the church folks and other volunteers, preparing and serving also sit down and eat with our guests, spreading ourselves around so that there are no more than one or two of us at each table. We talk the way people talk at a meal. At my table, the talk about the weather led two of our guests uh, to discover that they'd both grown up in Maine, the young vet with several visible tattoos and the pale, refined gentleman with a monogram on the pocket of his button-down collar shirt joked that Californians are such wimps about weather. The African-American man was concerned about getting a sleeping space a bit out of the way in one of the alcoves. None of them talked about how they got there, why they are homeless, what part of their life had come apart at the seams. Later, I remarked to Joy that much of uh, Friday night's crowd looked so normal. There was a young man who looked barely 20, another man who trained at the California Culinary Academy and suggested we try making pasta alfredo with chicken because it's easy and cheap and great comfort food. A Latino man talked about the traffic being so crazy after he got off work. The man has a job. Joy reminded me that if we heard their stories, we'd hear everything from addiction to mental illness to no safety net to broken relationships to too many bad breaks in a row. And then it struck me that all those stories are normal. Many of us in this sanctuary could tell those same stories. I was reminded that we welcome our guests not because their stories are different from ours or because their stories are the same as ours, but because we have been welcomed with all of our stories. We welcome them because, as Barbara Brown Taylor put it, Encountering another human being is as close to God as we may ever get in the eye-to-eye thing, the person-to-person thing, which is where God's beloved, where Christ, has promised to show up. Paradoxically, she writes, the point is not to see Christ. The point is to see the person standing right in front of us, who has no substitute, who can never be replaced, whose heart holds things for which there is no language, whose life is an unsolved mystery. We are not to be chameleons for Christ. Paul is not telling us we need to know our audience and adjust accordingly in order to sell our beliefs or the church or anything else. Even Paul was not actually all things to all people. In his letters he tells How he was run out of town, beaten by mobs, thrown in jail by people with whom he did not exactly fully connect. We will not be all things to everyone either. But one quarter of the New Testament came from the hand of someone who treated every person as if he or she mattered to him and to God and sought to embody that still more excellent way, the way of love. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.